Welcome to Ed Council Insights. This is our podcast to provide insights into current legal topics in the Missouri education community. If you're a Missouri school leader, school board member, or any public educational decision maker in Missouri, well, you're in the right place. Today, we're going to talk about one of the topics that is a potential pitfall for any Missouri public school district in any given year, but in particular this year. Each year, we see contract language that can create havoc for a school district. Each year, we see schools enter contracts that are ill-advised or end up being very detrimental to the school. With ESSER funds this year, we are seeing schools enter many more contracts with a large variety of vendors for different types of of materials, purchases of all sorts, including construction, but a variety of services as well. With contracting, there are a number of legal mistakes that schools can make. And unfortunately, once you've entered into the contract, those mistakes can be very difficult and expensive to fix. So today we're gonna talk about the top five red flags to watch for in school contracts. We have with us today an attorney who has handled hundreds of contracts for Missouri public school districts, my partner, Tom Smith. Tom is not only a partner here at Ed Council, but also runs our Lake St. Louis office. Tom handles some of our most complex contracts for schools around the state. And the reason I wanted to hear from Tom uh, about school contracts is that he's been involved in working through so many of our contract issues over the years. Welcome, Tom. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Glad to have you. And uh, I'm glad you're with us today on this particular topic. And we're going to talk about the five top red flags that we see in contracts for schools. But before we dive into those red flags, um, I want to talk to you a little bit about uh, some of the things that you see in terms of the contracting process for schools. And probably the best way to start that out is just to ask you uh, to talk a little bit about how it is schools are typically going about contracting with vendors. What's the typical pattern or practice that you see? Well, that, that's, that's a little tricky because uh, unfortunately, one of the red flags and one of the things that I see districts doing sometimes is that they don't have a process that they follow. They know they want to purchase something, uh, so they will just find who they want to purchase it from and ask them for a contract and sign it and off they go. And that can lead to a lot of problems down the road. But in terms of the procurement process that they're following, most districts have a policy in place that covers purchasing. And that will talk about, you know, at least with the, uh, if you have the EGS policies or you have the MSBA policies, uh, there are levels uh, depending on how much the expenditure is. And that will outline what particular process you're going to use. And beyond that, we also have some statutory requirements for different types of, of services or products. You know, we have different construction delivery methods that each come with their own procurement process that needs to be followed. Uh, we have certain types of services, insurance, items like that, that by statute have to be bid out uh, every certain number of years or in a certain manner. Uh, beyond that, it really becomes a function of board policy. Uh, so what you'll see with a lot of districts is, is like I said, those different levels. And if you have, uh, for example, anything over a certain amount, $25,000, let's say, then you have to follow a sealed bid or proposal process where you're actually advertising, soliciting proposals or bids from vendors, 
and then choosing the lowest or the best proposal or bid. So that's usually the, the way that we see them handling it is through their policy or if the if there's a statute that applies, then they'll follow the process there. Okay, and I, one thing I wanna ask you about and just talk briefly about uh, something that's coming up for a lot of districts right now, and that is you mentioned the procurement process and um, there are special requirements with if you're using federal money to pay for the, the contracted item, is that not correct? Correct. There are certain requirements that come along with, with using federal money. Uh, part of it is involved in how you're tracking the expenditure and reporting that, but then also part of it comes into the procurement process, uh, what your vendor has to agree to, the, the method that you use, uh, and certain restrictions that come into play. So what we see happen often with districts using federal funds, it, one of the restrictions that we see come up a lot is uh, if you are doing a construction project and you're using federal funds, some districts may be relying on you know, a local contractor or a contractor they have a good relationship with to advise them as they're designing the project and developing the specifications. But if you're going to be using federal funds to pay for that, one restriction is that anyone that helps you in the design process is actually prohibited from bidding on that project later because that is seen as giving them an unfair advantage because they participated in the process to develop the design of your project. That's a great example, Tom. Um, you know, one other area I wanted to go into about the process before we get into the red flags would be about boarding contracts and putting um, the uh, contract, the actual contract in front of the board for approval as it's written. Um, is, is that what's truly required for every single contract? I'm glad you asked about that because we, we do get that question a lot, especially with those districts that have, you know, dozens of contracts every month that come up and they don't want to inundate their board with all of those. But the short answer is that, yes, that is required by Missouri law. There's a statute that says that a contract will not be let unless it's approved by the board, meaning it will not be entered into. So under Missouri law, there are certain requirements that a school district has to follow in order to have a valid contract. One of those is that it has to be approved by the board. It also has to be signed, and it also has to be for something that is going to be done in the future. You can't have a vendor come in and provide services or provide you a product and then later enter into a contract that says you're going to pay them for it. Uh, you know, the, the payment and the services that are provided, we, we call those consideration. And what the, the applicable statute states is that the consideration has to be, uh, has to happen after the contract is entered into. So kind of a long way to answer your question, but yes, it is legally required to have the board approve the contract. There's arguments about when exactly that has to happen uh, in terms of whether it has to be before the vendor signs it and before they start providing services. But like I said, my interpretation of the law and our firm's interpretation is that that needs to happen before any services or products are provided. Okay. And I think that's really what the statute of fraud says. The, the, the statute that is applicable says it's got to be done before the services begin. But um, another piece of that is that it's not just the board, right? It's the majority of the board as a whole not just a majority of the quorum. So that's, uh, that's a piece that sometimes people miss. No, that's a great point. You're absolutely right. A majority of, under the statute, a majority of the board does have to vote in favor of the contract in order to approve it. Okay, let's, 
let's uh, spend a little time, Tom, talking about those red flags that I've mentioned. Uh, you review a ton of contracts each year, and yeah, let's let's talk about the types of things that you often see proposed in draft contracts that are provided to the school by the vendor that that are problematic from a legal point of view. Absolutely, and the, the number one issue that we see in contracts that that vendors provide is indemnification language or the provisions that say that the school district is going to indemnify, defend, and hold harmless the particular vendor from certain types of claims. So what, what exactly does that mean, Tom? I mean, uh, for our listeners who may not be as familiar with that kind of language, what, what's it mean to indemnify someone? So when you say you're going to indemnify someone, a simple way of looking at it is saying, I'm going to take your place. Uh, if you are sued for something that I have to indemnify you for, if you were to lose on the claim or you were to pay out the claim, then the district would take your place and, and reimburse you for that. And that's different from a duty to defend. If, the, if it says that the district is going to defend a vendor, what that means is that the district is going to pay for an attorney to defend that claim for them and then hold harmless kind of covers the last part of it, which is an agreement that you, the school district, will not go after the vendor for that. So you have a situation where the district would be agreeing to take the vendor's place or reimburse them for any uh, claim that's made. The school district will also be agreeing to uh, take over the defense of the claim in place of the vendor. And then the school district's agreeing not to go after the vendor for whatever happens and the cost that the district incurred for that. Okay, so let me look at it from this angle. You know, if you're talking about a school district agreeing to indemnify somebody, we can talk about the fact that that's probably not the best idea because you're putting yourself into a, a, a risk position that you wouldn't otherwise have to be in, right? Right. But, but then above and beyond that, are there some concerns that you have about uh, school districts entering? Can we even do that legally? Right. That's a great question because uh, for certain types of claims, we can't. Uh, as public entities, political subdivisions of the state, school districts have sovereign immunity from certain types of claims, mainly tort claims. Uh, so things like negligence. By agreeing to indemnify, defend, and hold another entity harmless, that acts as a waiver of that sovereign immunity. So the Missouri Attorney General's office issued an advisory opinion addressing this very question, and there, in their opinion, it, was, it would act as a waiver of sovereign immunity. The reason that's an issue is because sovereign immunity can only be waived uh, by the state legislature. They're the only ones with the authority to do that, and they do that through statute. So if you were to go look through the sovereign immunity statutes, you'll see there are certain exceptions uh, for you know premises liability or um, vehicular traffic, things like that. So when we are agreeing by contract to waive that sovereign immunity by agreeing to indemnify, defend, or hold harmless, that is not legally valid. That, that provision, and depending on what other contract language you have, potentially the entire contract would be legally invalid if we were to agree to that. Okay, so our first red flag is indemnification. That should be something that is people see that in the contract. If the vendor's asking them to indemnify them, 
or defend or hold them harmless, that's a red flag that they need to dial into. Is that fair? Fair. Okay. So then, okay, let's talk about uh, other red flags, Tom, that you see in contracts typically being provided to, to schools. And I say being provided to schools, it, in my experience, a lot of times that's what will happen. If there's a vendor that's looking to enter into a relationship with the school district, they often provide the contract unless the school's been proactive enough to have a contract drafted themselves. Is that kind of what you've seen? Yeah, yeah, you're absolutely right. Um, you know, a lot of districts look at it in terms of uh, a, a time and cost factor, where it's easier to just pick your vendor and then ask the vendor to provide a contract that will be reviewed, sometimes by legal, sometimes not. But they find that to be easier than the district actually drafting the contract itself. And some districts, they, you know, just don't use those services or order those products often enough. So they don't really know what the contract would look like in the first place. Uh, but when we get those contracts, what we're seeing, one thing that most vendors don't really account for, and this kind of creates a red flag for school districts, is that they don't have legally required language in there. There are certain statutes that require school districts to incorporate language into a contract that states certain things. Um, for example, if we have, if we're using any services that are, is costing us more than $5,000, we have to have e-verify language in there. Uh, verification from the vendor that they are enrolled in a federal work authorization program. That's required under Missouri law. Uh, another example is one that recently passed, uh, I think it was last legislative session, was the Anti-Discrimination Against Israel Act. That require, that's required for any contract over $100,000. We have to have language in there that includes a certification from the vendor that they're not going to, or they're not engaged in a boycott or any type of discrimination against the state of Israel, companies doing business in the state of Israel, things like that. And what's really concerning about that particular statute is that it says if you don't put that language in your contract, your contract is automatically void, meaning it never existed. So you could have this great contract that you think is really favorable to you, and you pay this vendor for this product, and then they say, well, actually, we're not going to give you this product, or we're going to give you a substitute, or they deliver it, and it's not what you were expecting, and you want to get out of it. You could find yourself in court trying to sue the vendor, and they bring up the fact that this language isn't in the contract, so the contract never existed. You know, it's interesting about that is that the Eighth Circuit Court of Appeals, Federal Court of Appeals, kind of ruled on a similar statute out of Arkansas and said it was unconstitutional. So it'll be interesting to see how this all plays out in Missouri. Of course, as you as you said, I mean, that's something that's required by Missouri law right now. And so that's what we'll go with until the court says otherwise. But, you know, the point being, I guess, with the red flags is that there are a number of different things for, you know, maybe it's prevailing wage on a construction contract. Lots of stuff that's supposed to be in there. And if it's not in there, it may impact the validity of the agreement itself, right? Right. And, you know, even beyond just affecting the validity of the agreement, sometimes we want the statute may not say that we have to include specific language, but we want that language from the statute or the regulation in there so that we are clearly identifying to that vendor what our expectation is uh, that they comply with that particular law. So with FERPA, when we're going to be using vendors and they're going to have access to confidential student information, 
we want to make it very clear in the contract that they are considered school officials under the definitions in FERPA and why that is and what restrictions come with that. That's a good point, you know, especially with those vendors that are maybe out of state, so they're not familiar with Missouri law, or perhaps they're not used to dealing with school districts, so they don't get what FERPA is about, that sort of thing. So that's a, that's a great point, Tom. Um, other red flags, I, I know we're doing kind of a top five. I think we're up to number three now. What, uh, what, do, three. You, what do you see? Well, it, it kind of goes back to your point about some of the vendors being from out of state, around the country, wherever it happens to be, just not located in Missouri. Uh, if you look at the contracts that a lot of them provide, it says that the contract is going to be governed by the law where the vendor's located, whether that be in Texas or Colorado or New York. And then it also says that if any disputes arise under the contract that need to be resolved through litigation, then that litigation is going to happen where the vendor's located, even if that's out of the state. And you know, a lot of times those provisions are kind of just glanced over and not really paid much attention to because they're usually snuck into the kind of the boilerplate contract provisions and no one really pays much attention to it. But that can have serious implications for your school district. If you find yourself in a dispute with a vendor and you decide that you want to try to bring a lawsuit against them or they decide that they want to bring a lawsuit against you, you could find yourself having to hire an attorney halfway across the country to defend or uh, proceed with a lawsuit that you didn't think had to be done that far away. And it's not even going to be governed by Missouri law. So a lot of the things that we would have put in there that are required by Missouri law or uh, you know, going back to the question of indemnification language. We analyze that under Missouri law. That might not be the same in a different state. And that type of a provision may be permitted in a different state. And you could find yourself being subject to that state's laws when you're going through this litigation. Good point. Good point. Um, let's talk about the, the fourth red flag that you would identify as being a part of the top five. Um, and this goes right along with, you know, where are, what state's laws are going to govern, where are we going to have any litigation? Uh, that's dispute resolution. Frequently, what we find in vendor-provided contracts is they have a particular process they want to follow for uh, resolving disputes. We talked about the litigation aspect of it, but there's other parts too. There's other dispute resolution methods, what we call alternative dispute resolution uh, that includes things like mediation and arbitration. So there's options in terms of what you want to do. Sometimes we'll see a requirement to meet and confer, followed by mediation, followed by arbitration, or the mediation will be followed by litigation, but it requires you to go through those steps before you even get to litigation. Uh, there are benefits of proceeding with those alternative methods in certain situations, but there's also drawbacks. You know, there may be a dispute that very, very clearly will not be resolved if the parties meet and discuss it or through mediation. So why take the time and expense to go through those steps when we know it's going to proceed to litigation anyway? Uh, with arbitration specifically, depending on the dispute and the rules that are going to apply, it's very possible it's going to be more expensive and more time consuming and ultimately take longer to resolve if you go through arbitration instead of proceeding straight through straight to litigation. So when you're taking a look at those, 
you want to see what dispute resolution procedures is the vendor offering up and what is your district comfortable with. Our recommendation is usually to say that it's just going to be litigation. If there's a dispute, we'll proceed to litigation. That will be the binding method of dispute resolution. But if the parties agree, then they can use an alternative method. That way, if we know that there's a dispute that won't be resolved any other way but through litigation, then we can proceed straight there. But if it's something that we think, yeah, we just need to sit down and talk about this, there's that option too, if the vendor will agree to it. All right, I've given you the opportunity for five red flags and you've burned four of them. So, uh, okay, we're down to the, to, to the last of the five. Uh, what would you say is the fifth uh, uh, most often seen red flag in contracts for schools? The fifth one is probably one of the most frustrating, and that is the incorporation of other documents. So you'll see in some of these contracts that they will have hyperlinks embedded into them, or they will have references to a website where you can find additional language. And they'll say that these are our private, these are our terms of use, or this is our privacy policy. And this is made a part of the contract and it's available here. And we have the ability to change it at any time, even after the contract is signed. Just on our own, we can decide to change it and then you have to follow that. That's gonna be made part of the contract. So what we see a lot of times is school districts will sign these contracts and they won't even look at those documents that are incorporated into them. Or they'll send them to us thinking, hey, this is just a three-page contract. It's a very simple thing to review. Uh, and they won't expect that those documents that are embedded into the contract or incorporated into it end up being where the real meat of everything is. And they, you know, they are 10 to 15 pages as opposed to three pages. And there's three different documents that are incorporated into that main contract. Um, and depending on the content of those additional documents, like I said, it can be very, it can put the district in a very bad position, especially if the, you know, we have things like the governing law, uh, what, what law is going to control the contract or where the venue for any disputes is going to be, the, any type of indemnification language, all the other red flags we talked about and more, if that's included in those documents that are being incorporated and they also have language in there that says they get to change those whenever they want and we have to follow them, then we're kind of at their mercy at that point once we sign the contract because they get to just change it whenever they like. Doesn't sound exactly like it's favorable to, to schools when that happens, but yeah. um, you know, uh, I appreciate you kind of giving us a rundown on those, on those top five uh, red flags that you see in contracts. I want to take a, just a minute before we close things out, Tom, and, and let's talk a little bit about how schools can avoid making missteps uh, as they go through the contracting process. And what's the best piece of advice that you can give a school district as they, as they process contracts with vendors? That's a good question. Uh, the best piece of advice, I think, would be to draft your own form contracts or just a list of contractual provisions and let the vendor know ahead of time. And that can be done, you know, in a couple of different ways. It's 
You can either do it through the procurement process. So, and what I mean by that is an RFP request for proposal, an invitation to bid, a request for qualification. Uh, you can do it that way and incorporate your contract terms or your draft contract into that procurement document. And then insert language into that that says, this is what the contract's gonna be, or the final contract will include these terms. And if you don't agree to that, then we can reject your bid or reject your proposal and move on to somebody else. Or alternatively, if you're not using any type of procurement process, if the purchase is low enough, you can simply provide, the, provide it to the vendor ahead of time and say, hey, this is what we're expecting the contract to look like before you even send over your draft contract. So if you have a draft contract you want to use, take these terms and put them in there. Or we're using this contract that we've developed. That's the only one we're interested in using. We can talk about making revisions to it, but we're gonna, this is going to be the starting point. And I, I get that, Tom, but you know, one of the things that um, I tend to hear from clients sometimes is, you know, as a practical matter, isn't it just easier to have the contractor put the contract together and then have you review it? Isn't that simpler? Isn't that going to be more efficient for us as a school district if we do it that way? If you're, if you look narrowly at it, uh, at just the contract revisions itself and the time that we're going to spend reviewing the, the draft contract from the vendor, yeah, that would maybe be more efficient depending on what we need to change in that vendor's contract. But if you look at it, uh, if you widen your scope a little bit and you look at the overall time spent negotiating the changes to the contract, uh, the time spent resolving any disputes that might come up during that process or even after the contract signed, it's going to be more efficient if you work on those contractual terms or even that draft contract ahead of time. So for example, with construction, that's a really good opportunity to put draft contracts straight into the bidding documents because we know that a lot of districts or a lot of architects and contractors like to use the AIA form contracts. And we have revisions that we would usually make to those. We can incorporate those directly into the bidding documents and then let contractors know ahead of time that these are what the contracts are going to be, what the contract documents will be and what our revisions to the form AIA contracts are. And contractors will know that, they'll submit their bid knowing that, and we hopefully will get to a point uh, at the end of it where we're not negotiating contract terms, we're simply plugging in the name of the contractor, the prices, any alternates, things like that. Uh, so we're just plugging in information into the contract and then it's ready to go, rather than having to spend weeks or and sometimes I've had to spend months negotiating contract changes with a vendor or a contractor. And it could be for things that we are, like we talked about earlier, we're required by law to include in the contract and contractors don't want them in there. Uh, so if you look at the entire process versus just, versus just focusing in on that particular part of it, it's much more efficient to do the work ahead of time and save yourself from unknown issues and much more work farther down the road. I'm glad you brought up construction, Tom, because that's one of the big areas that we see um, problems with contracting in part because it's something that, you know, we're talking about a lot of money 
a lot of times for the school district, you know, they're, they're putting a lot of money into the capital project, but then, uh, above and beyond that, even, you know, it's, it's a high profile thing. People really right. uh, watch the facilities. They understand if, if you're, if your gym floor is warped and coming up, you know, within six months after it being constructed, well, that's going to be something that you're going to hear about from, yeah. as a, from a school point of view. So, um, any general advice or resources that schools should think about when considering construction contracts? I have one piece of advice and I have one resource. Best advice I can, I can give school districts is involve your legal team early on in the process before you even put those, uh, before you even issue your request for qualifications for a design professional or put out your invitation to bid. Work with your legal team to review those, make sure that you're in the best possible position you could be in for that bidding process, uh, and that that contract negotiation is going to go smoothly because you're going to give yourself leverage in it. In terms of resources, uh, we did just earlier this week start our construction project series on the blog on the Ed Council website. Uh, we The first part of that series came out on Tuesday, and it's intended to be a monthly, uh, have monthly additions to it and keep that going now that we're in the uh, prime part of contracting and construction season. Well, thank you, Tom, for that uh, and your insights today uh, into vendor contracts for Missouri Public Schools. And we thank you, the listeners, for taking the time today, and we hope you will follow and share our Ed Council podcast on social media and subscribe to hear upcoming episodes on current legal topics with practical insights on how to manage the legal risk and compliance issues related to school law. You can also give us a follow on Twitter, Facebook, or, and LinkedIn, or you can check us out at our website. Just Google Ed Council, all one word, E-D-C-O-U-N-S-E-L, and you'll find us there. Glad we could be together, and thanks for listening to this edition of Ed Council Insights.